If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, hey, we're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 17. We're continuing in this series in Acts. If you want to open up in your Bibles to Acts 17, if you're new to your Bible, it's towards the back, but not all the way. Uh, if you, it's after John, but before Romans. If you start hitting Corinthians and Ephesians and Colossians and all that, you went too far. But if you're in like Matthew, Mark, Luke, you're almost there. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. I'll give you a moment to get there. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever been so bothered about something that you couldn't help but speak up? All right. For me, it was the time I was at the Metrolink uh, leaving a Cardinals game and I heard a man yelling at a woman. And as I turned around, I saw his hand strike her face. And all of a sudden, my hands were on his shirt, setting him on the curb, and my wife was speaking with her. Because something in me just said, I have to speak up. Or like the other day when I dropped my wife and a friend off, and as I watched her walk in, I saw two older men break their necks checking her out. And I just couldn't help roll my window down and let him know, bro, they're already taken. (laughs) There's something in me that couldn't help but speak up. And in this passage, it's actually exactly where Paul finds himself, except for he's not speaking up because men are acting a fool towards women. He's speaking up because men are acting a fool towards God. And he can't help himself but speak up, except he isn't speaking up in anger or rage. He's speaking up in love. His response is truly amazing. I'll meet you in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 17, sorry, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so just a little side note on Athens. Uh, Even after Rome's ascendancy, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. Think Oxford, Harvard, Yale, MIT, and Duke all rolled into one. It was a center for the arts and athletics. It housed one of the world's largest stadiums for sports and uh, was, of course, the original site for the Olympics. Yet Paul wasn't amazed by Athens. Instead, what does the scripture say? It says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, the word full, that's not an exaggeration, that the city was full of idols. Actually, there was an ancient saying in Athens that it's easier to find a god in Athens than a man. If you go to Athens today, everywhere you look, you'll see temple ruins. Areopagus on the Acropolis, temples of Apollyon and Zeus, numerous temples with thousands of idols. Paul sees this, this incredible idol worship, and his spirit is provoked within him, and he has to do something. So what does he do? Does he go on an idol-smashing rampage? No. Does he start picketing? No. What does he do? What does it say? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. He reasoned. He used his mind. And he starts with the religious folk and then in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. A little context, the marketplace in ancient cities was the cultural center, not just the place you shopped. So he's not just like creepily hanging out in the Target checkout aisle, like trying to talk about, hey, hey girl, you want to hear about Jesus? Like he's not, he's not doing that. No, no. The marketplace is where you did everything. I mean, nearly every human interaction, trading, politics, debating, philosophy. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter. You actually had to have the the chops to stand there in person and debate with people. And so the marketplace is where almost every human interaction happened. And when Paul spoke in the marketplace, verse 18 tells us that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. 
Epicureans were basically hedonists. They believed that the, the gods were composed of atoms so fine that they dwelt in the space between the worlds. And they didn't care about this world, so live it up. Do whatever you want. Just live for pleasure. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheists who believed God was in everything, similar to today's Hindus. They were all about self-control. So their idea was neither be upset nor excited, just consistently calm. In other words, pain doesn't bother you. Pleasure doesn't seduce you. Uh, when you think of a Stoic, think of Spock from Star Trek. He just embodied what it means to be a Stoic. So most of the people fall into these two camps in that day, either Epicureans or Stoics. And both are very spiritual, but that doesn't mean that they were honestly searching for God. Many listened to Paul, but many others actually made fun of him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler, it's a derogatory term that uh, referred to a bird picking up seeds and then spitting them back out without digesting them. Think like a chicken, you know, like a chicken, babbler. It's my best chicken right there. It's, it's the best you got. Babblers were people who rambled on about ideas that they picked up from other people without having really digested it and thought of it themselves. They're second-class minds. And this idea, it kind of lives on today, right? I mean, many people think that if you're a Christian, you kind of have to check your mind at the door. Many people today, maybe even in your workplace or if you're in school at your university, many people today, when you say, I'm a Christian, they look at you kind of like you're a Neanderthal that's dragging your knuckles and has like never read a book and wants to marry your sister. Like that's what they, when they think Christian, they think, man, you must have checked your mind at the door because who could believe that? And that's what they say to Paul. They say, man, you're just, you're just a babbler. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, which by the way, there's a little clue to where every discussion that Paul went into, that's where he's headed is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every conversation he gets into, he's taking it to that and he's driving it to the resurrection. If we continue on verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And historians say that philosophers were always on the lookout for the new gods they could add to the Parthenon. So this is an interview. Does this Christianity have the intellectual chops to be added to our Parthenon? That we can add this God to all the other gods? It's an interview for Paul. It's an interview for Christianity. What do you think? You think Paul's going to interview well? I think he's going to do all right. Let's check it out. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I love this. I love that Paul, who vastly disagrees with the philosophers he's speaking with, he finds a way to affirm them. He finds a way to connect. He finds a way to build a bridge. He's affirming whatever he can. Side note, we should affirm whatever we can in the people that we talk with. Every person in culture has the fragments of God's image at work in them. And, and, and we, as believers, would do well to find those and to humbly, honestly affirm what we can so that we can build a bridge, so we can challenge the things that aren't of God when that time comes. Paul continues. He, he continues to meet them where they're at. Verse 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. This was their just in case God. Just in case the real God didn't get into the Parthenon, we made this image for you, the unknown God. Just in case we missed you, we made this just to kind of cover our bases. Don't want to make a God upset. 
What's more is that all around the Parthenon are images of struggle. It represented their struggle to figure life out, to make life work. And Paul saw in these images a struggle for God. And so he comes in with the gospel as the solution to their struggle. He says this statement that I think is just brilliant. It's incredible. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That, that unknown God that you're not sure and you just wanna cover your base, I just wanna let you know, I know who he is. Let me help you out. And he goes on. Notice he starts with their question. It's significantly different than, where he's, than how he engages elsewhere. Acts 17, verse two, we see with the Jews that he begins with the scriptures because they believed in the scriptures. But, but these philosophers, they don't believe in the scriptures. So he doesn't start with the scripture. No, he starts with their question. And, and then watch what he does. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He, he points out their logical problems with their approach to God. He asks them, does it make sense that the God who created everything would fit into a temple made by you? Does it make sense that the God who made everything would need you to put food out for him and serve him and polish it? Does that make any sense? That the God who made everything, who spoke everything into existence, who upholds you by his word of power, does it make sense? No, of course it doesn't make sense. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on, he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. First, he's saying the real God is not some tribal deity who has jurisdiction over a limited sphere. See, they had the God of the sea and the God of the Ephesians and the God of good sex. It was a God. Paul says, no, there's one God who's over all. The real God is the creator of all the earth and all mankind, the Lord of heaven and earth. Second, he says, the greatest pursuit in life is to find him. Greek and Roman gods were always a means to some other thing. Artemis, the goddess of prosperity or money. If you wanted that, you went to her temple and you made offerings. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, politics. In her temple, they had this picture of Zeus's head that was split open and her being taken out of it. If you wanted to be smart, to have wisdom, you worshiped her. Or Nike, the goddess of victory, worshiped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan, <laughs> who made you run faster and jump higher and soar above the competition. It's a real thing. Aphrodite, goddess of sexuality, beauty, fertility, or Cloacina. You better be praying to Cloacina, the goddess of the sewer system. <laughs> I'm not sure what she was worshiped for. Maybe like smoother bowel movements or something. I don't know, but we light a candle in our bathroom sometimes. I don't know if that counts, but all these gods were a means to something else. Prosperity, pow power, smoother bowel movements. Whatever was important to you, you picked that God and you made a sacrifice. But the real God is so glorious, Paul says, and transcendent that his own, he is his own reward, not to be sought as a means for something else, not a means to an end. He is the end in himself. Paul's saying all that the human heart longs for, it's found in him. All love, all joy, all peace, all prosperity, all hope, all healing, all wisdom, all life, everything that the human heart longs for finds its source in God himself. It would be silly to go to him to get something else for there's nothing that even compares to him, which is why it's such a tragedy when we worship created things instead of the creator himself. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the treasure. And Paul goes on, he says, yet, 
Even though God is so glorious and transcendent, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. Which this is incredible because uh, you see those quote marks? This is a quote, but not from scripture. This is a quote from a song about Zeus written in 600 BC. Paul uses a cultural song to tell them about God. He does it twice, actually. He goes on, he, quoting their poets too. He says, even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This was from a, a poem called Phenomena written by the Stoic prophet, poet, Aratus in 330 BC. And Paul's well-versed enough in their culture that he can say, yes, what you believe here, it's true. And the questions you're asking, those are good questions. Keep asking those. Yeah, that belief is true. I believe that too. He's building bridges everywhere he can. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. I.e., if God is creator, you're foolish to think you can reduce him to something you can hold in your hands. And then at last, he goes right into the gospel. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Assurance in verse 31 means proof. I've heard some say, actually, when I was an early, early Christian, a friend of mine, his dad asked me, so what's the proof of Christianity? How could you really believe that? You can't see anything, you can't touch anything. I mean, if God is God, why doesn't he just open the heavens, come down, make himself known, and we could all get on with it? He had, why does he have to be so obscure and invisible? I, I respond to that and say, he has. He did open the heavens, he did come down. His name is Jesus. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross. In our place, he died the death that we deserve. He rose from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death. What other man has lived a perfect, sinless life, walking around, healing the sick, providing for the poor, multiplying bread and fishes? What other man has risen from the dead? God has given us proof in raising Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the evidence of Christianity. It is the ground on which we stand. If, if there is no resurrection of the dead, there is no Christianity. And we should all get on with life doing things that are more pleasing and gratifying in this life. But if there is a resurrection, it changes everything. So to sum this up, I see five things in Paul's example that as believers, we can be challenged by, we can learn from, and maybe those of us who are still considering, would we follow this Jesus? We can learn from as well. Number one, be provoked by the idolatry. When Paul saw the impressive structures in Athens, he did not, they did not intimidate him, nor did they seduce him. They provoked Paul. When you see idolatrous structures in our society, let me ask you, what is your reaction? Tim Keller said, look at whatever buildings in your city are the biggest. Those usually indicate the idols. So St. Louis, what do we have? Well, we have huge financial buildings, huge ones. We have a lot of breweries. We have some sporting arenas, blues, cardinals. Let me ask you, what, what do those things, alcohol, money, sports, what do those do to you? Let me ask you this. Do you crave those things more than God? Not theoretically, but actually. Do you crave them more than God? Do you daydream about them more than God? Let me bring it home a little more. The blues, winning the cup. I wonder if some of us didn't celebrate that more 
than we ever have the resurrection of Jesus. And that's not to say that we don't engage those things, that we don't sell it. We should. We should engage. We see Paul doing it. But it's just to say that, that it should bother us that there are things in our city that get more glory than God himself. That should provoke us to speak up. Or maybe, maybe when you watch the Oscars or the Academy Awards, what emotion fills you? I mean, the awe, it's so impressive. But are you also heartbroken at the fact that many of these performers in our society is so far from God? And if not, if you're not provoked by the idolatry and the sensuality in our culture, then I hate to say it, but you're worldly. And on the other hand, if you're one of those who sees that and you just get angry and you avoid the culture, you've missed the gospel too. Somehow Paul lives in the tension. He's provoked by the idolatry, but he's moved with compassion. He doesn't run away, he runs near in love. Number two, find points of agreement. I won't spend long on this, but the main thing here is to understand that the heart of mankind is incurably religious. What I mean is that God created us to worship and know him. It's, it's a primary drive, like a hunger for food. And we all have it. As the, as the author of Ecclesiastes said, God has put eternity into men's hearts. Now, because of sin, it's been corrupted, but the remnants of it are still there. And, and all of us, we ask these ultimate questions. All of us, we search for meaning. All of us, we put ultimate value on certain things that we live for because we're longing for something beyond us. We're longing for God. And this search should be affirmed when possible. So when you have confidence in your beliefs, you don't have to be defensive. You don't have to be combative. When you have confidence in your beliefs, you can affirm what you can to build a bridge for the gospel. So I've told Muslims, I'm inspired by your commitment and I am intrigued by your faith. I say that because it's true, I am. I've told a Jehovah's Witness yesterday at my door. He knocked on my door, I grabbed my Bible, I was so excited and <laughs> I got down there and God did something in my heart to where I saw a human being, not an argument. And I just asked questions and listened and I told him, I said, I'm really inspired by your boldness, your commitment to do what you do. I'd love to talk to you more. I will have another conversation this week. I'll wrap that thing up. I've told an atheist before, I, admi I admire your passion for truth. Genuinely, I do. I just think you're wrong. <laughs> I'm not telling them I believe what I believe, what, what they believe. Actually, every time I would say, I, you know, I, dis I lovingly disagree. But we don't start there. We don't start with the fist up. No, we start in love. We build the bridge to take the gospel over. At the same time, we do expose the insufficiency of false answers. Evolution, for example, if you think evolution explains everything, that, that given enough time and space, nature will naturally just work itself into higher, higher levels of complexity. Let me ask you, where did nature get that quality? I mean, where did nature come from to begin with? Where is, why is there something rather than nothing? Like, are we really expected to believe that nothing plus nobody equals everything? Okay, the Big Bang, but what caused that? What was before it? You just, you keep going back and eventually you see. Or the idea that all roads lead to God. I mean, you've heard the idea that God's like an elephant and different religions are like blind men holding parts of the elephant. You know, the, the Muslims have the trunk and the Christians have a leg and the Hindus have the belly. But what's the problem? Well, to see that picture, someone has to have ultimate perspective. Wouldn't you be presuming the one thing you're denying everyone else, if you're the one who can say all roads lead to God, you're saying you can see all roads. You're saying you can see clearly and everyone else is blind. 
or to those who say all moral values are equal. Do you really believe that? I mean, Peter Singer, respected Australian philosopher, argues that society would be better off if we eliminated those with birth defects up to two years old and euthanized the elderly. So he says those things should be legal. His TED talk about doing good to your fellow man has over 240,000 views on YouTube. You look under the hood and that's what he believes. Euthanized children with special needs up to two years old, euthanize the old. Some societies believe that life works better if you keep women uneducated and at home. So if you say all moral values are equal, are you prepared to say those moral values are equal as well? To say that all moral values are equal are to say that there is no moral values. And when I talk to atheists who are really concerned to show that they can still be moral people, I say, you know, I admire you, but if there is no God, if there really is no, there really is no basis to say that there's right or wrong. If you say to someone, you ought to do this, even though it's maybe not in their best interest, but it's wrong for society, well, ought implies some divine law that supersedes their interest in the moment. So how can you say you ought to do this? I mean, atheists can account for moral feelings as some kind of evolutionary advantage, but they can't account for moral obligations. That can only come from a divine being. Mankind is incurably religious, that's the point. Which means we ask a lot of the right questions, but only Jesus and the gospel gives satisfying answers. And listen, you don't have to know all these arguments. It's helpful if you do, but you don't have to. All you need to be able to do is ask probing questions in love until you expose that's really not the truth. If you have the confidence that this book, that the scriptures, this is the truth of God, then you can know that all other things are not. Fourthly, proclaim the greatness of God. The, the core of Paul's message was that the true God was so much bigger than their idols could contain. He doesn't just manage some areas of life. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't just help you in your situation. He created you. He placed you in time and space, and he had plans for you before you were ever born. He doesn't just need you to serve him. You desperately need him. He's the only one that can satisfy those deep longings of your soul. He doesn't need you. We need him. And one of the chief characteristics of false religions is a truncated or a shrunk down view of God. God gets reduced to a size that we can explain or to get something else we want, like prosperity or power. That's how you know you're in a false religion. The real God is so large and infinite and wise that he is often unexplainable. As Evelyn Underhill said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshiped. Fourthly, proclaim the greatness of God and proclaim the great joy that it is to know him. Fifthly and finally, drive towards the resurrection. This is where Paul gets to. It's where he's always headed. It's where the greatness of God is most on display, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel is fundamentally an announcement, not an argument, but the gospel is fundamentally an announcement about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who himself claimed to be God. The, the, the symbol of Christianity is not a ladder. A ladder is the symbol of religion. The symbol of Christianity is a cross where God came down for us. Instead of looking on our sin and our shame and turning his face away, he drew near. God moved into the neighborhood. He walked in our shoes. He lived the life that we failed to live and he died the death that we deserved. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, our sins, past, present, future sins, if you're in Christ, if you've believed in Jesus for your salvation, 
your past sins, your present sins, your future sins have been nailed with him on the cross. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103 tells us, God has cast or removed our sins from us. Better yet, God, Jesus didn't even stay in the tomb. The grave couldn't hold him. He defeated death, which is why Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, how powerful. Can you imagine a people who didn't fear death? Not just a person, but a people who didn't fear death. Can you imagine the power of a community that was so confident in the resurrection power of Jesus that we didn't fear death? Not only that, but we didn't live for this life, that we lived as though we're just walking through this life headed for another as pilgrims who are provoked by the idols surrounding us. And yet we engage the society with love in hopes of winning some, knowing that some would mock and some would only consider as what happened to Paul, but some by God's grace would believe and be saved. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. You're just looking in. The most, the most important question for you this morning is a question that Jesus asked to Peter. He says, who do you say that I am? If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. That's the question to you this morning. Who do you say that he is? Do you believe that he is God? Do you believe that he's died for your sins? Do you believe that he's risen from the dead? If you do, confess your sins to him. Take the step this morning. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to give you life in his name. Ask him to give you an eternal life where you're a child of God. And if you do that, he will receive you. If you do that, you will be with him forever. If you'll stand with me, I want to pray for us.